everybody. Welcome back to Wrapped in Podcast. After a long hiatus, we've recorded two episodes. One is in the can and still constant process of redevelopment, uh, namely the straight story. And we've talked about the elephant man. We are continuing to go through David Lynch's works, his film, his feature films. And today we're going to be talking about Mulholland Drive. We've got a complete reunion of the OG Wrapped in Podcast team. We've got uh, Kyle, we've got Ken, and we've got Jeff, uh, which is really exciting for me. And I'm, I'm glad to be talking to the three of you again after so long. Uh, so, uh, Kyle, uh, my question for you is, have you ever done this before? well that's a very this is a very different context for that question um uh no uh no the if you're talking about uh mulholland drive or as uh as my uh amazon echo called it when it was delivered mulholland doctor uh no i i had never seen it before watching it uh last weekend in preparation for uh for this podcast and and i think ultimately the 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 one takeaway that I have from it is uh, I think it's as good an explanation as any for Melania Trump's disappearance. Um, I think it adds up in that regard. Um, and we'll get into the details in greater depth later. But but overall, um, I, I loved it. I, I thought it was uh, it was intriguing. It it was engaging. It was funny. Um, it was it was harrowing without being um, you know sort of uh, fraught with danger. At every moment, and yeah. and and it was uh, Kyle. We're, yeah. we're, Kyle, yeah. Kyle, we're just doing the introductions. We'll, we'll oh get shit! To- <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off, shit. but I think okay. I think we want to right. explore uh, more fully your virgin eyes. Okay, uh, seeing the movie for the first time. So, uh, and then we've got Ken returning. Uh, Ken, how are how are you doing? And uh, have you eaten at any good diners recently? Yeah, you know, I'm doing great. I won a jitterbug contest, and now I'm here. Uh, so things are going great for me. And I have been to some very fine diners, uh, but the last one that I was at, there was a possessed homeless person um, behind a dumpster in the back, and it was very traumatic for me. And so I don't really want to talk about that. Yeah, there's a way you can just sort of fall into the podcasting business from winning a jitterbug contest. Oldest story in the book, yeah. That's right. And uh, Jeff, are you ready to start thinking and stop being a smart aleck? <laughs> Only if there's a buggy involved. And there is sometimes a buggy. <laughs> there's sometimes I've a shaved, buggy. I've shaved, it's I've not sh- about the buggy. I've shaved my eyebrows and I'm wearing some of Tom Mix's old clothes in preparation for my buggy ride. That's yep. commitment. Well, I, I would say that my the biggest impression that I got out of watching Mulholland Drive this time in 2017 and in 2018, uh, and then seeing it in the theater originally is that it's clear to me that Justin Thoreau has gone through a kind of second puberty. Huh, yeah. Did you guys agree? I mean, yeah. like he, he is, he is this like slight fay, tiny guy in this movie. Yet if, you know, his later work, I mean, I'm familiar with the leftovers, which is a good TV show. He's absolutely ripped, and it seems like a foot taller, uh, seemingly. So it was really weird um, seeing that. Well, he's but a little bit like Balthazar Getty that way, right? I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't think I've looked at a picture of Balthazar Getty ever. 
He's just much more slight <laughs> so in like say. Lost Highway than he is in The Return, right? He's he seems to have grown up quite a lot between Lost Highway and Twin Peaks: The Return, and 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 gotten kind of ripped. Yeah, well, he was basically a kid in Lost Highway, right. whereas I don't think Justin Theroux was that young. I don't know. Um, so this movie has an interesting history because it actually has a connection to Twin Peaks in that it was a pilot of a television show that was then reworked to be a feature film. Uh, and those of us who were super Twin Peaks nerds in the 90s know that for a long time, and we've talked about this before, you could not get the pilot of the series on its own on VHS or any other format. What you could get was the European cut, which took the pilot and then slapped on an ending where they kill Bob in the basement. Uh, so this movie was a pilot for a TV show that a that David Lynch was going to make. Uh, I think for was it ABC or was it CBS? ABC. It was ABC, like, like Twin Peaks. And uh, the story is he 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 had he shot the pilot. It was much longer than the network wanted, and so he had to cut it down to I think eighty eight minutes, and. It was apparently awful, and he hates it. He disowns it, uh, the 88-minute the cut, because he thought it was just too short. The studio basically canceled everything. And then a couple years later, a European production company was interested in producing a film, which required shooting more footage to make what had been the pilot into a single cohesive film. Uh, I I imagine that out there, there are versions of that 88-minute pilot. I would be fascinated to watch it, uh, as well as to know what sort of the the arc of the plan for this series was going to be. Um, any of you guys know anything about that? Well, Jared, apparently... Lynch really doesn't want anyone to see the 88 minute um, cut or or the pilot, as it were. Um, that's that's. I don't give a shit. Yeah, I still want to. Well, see that's it. fine, but I just think that's a reason why it might not be out there accessible for us, right? I think he's he's sitting on it um, to the extent he's able to do that. Oh, I, I don't think there's a legitimate way to watch. Right. It. I'm I'm assuming that it's on Pirates Bay or something. Well, I, I mean, I don't know, right? The footage would have had to have gotten into someone's hands, and and I think exactly. he's he's been really attentive not to let that happen. That's that's what the the introduction to the Rodley chapter says in, in Lynch on Lynch that you know he's he's very against talking about the pilot or or anybody seeing it. Yeah, of course it would be fascinating to see what the, what the differences are and and what it looked like, but I don't I don't know that we ever will. Yeah, and I'm surprised that it never got out. I mean, I think he actually did do it. I mean, maybe you can get it in Hollywood somewhere, you know, but like you have a, a VHS from 1999 of it. But yeah, I was, I'm surprised that it never became easier to find. Cause I remember hearing about it and reading about it, like around 2001 and imagining it would surface at some point, but it never did. Uh, and he, he actually says in that Rodley chapter, if there could be some sort of combustion that would get rid of all the copies that still exist on tape, of the 88-minute version. That would be the most beautiful thing to me because it was a heartache. It was a bad moment. <laughs> so maybe he did have a combustion one day. I mean, Lynch does have a little bit of like of a George Lucas side to him where he sort of wants to control how his work is out in the public and perceived. I mean, just look at the ways in which he's um, banned chapter stops from DVDs oh my and God. pixelated genitalia and like just gone back and tweaked stuff because he thinks that, you know, he things should be perceived his way and he doesn't like the way home video changes the experience of watching something. So it, I guess it shouldn't surprise me that he would like a cleansing fire to burn all of those copies. Anybody else have any notes or thoughts on the production history before we move on to Kyle's 
first impressions? Um, I think this is on the new, the Criterion Collection Blu-ray of uh, Mulholland Drive, which is great. And I think there's an interview, one of the first interviews on there, new interviews, is with Lynch and Naomi Watts. And um, Lynch is, is saying that the film was watched by whoever the head of programming was at ABC at the time at like 6 a.m., uh, while he was like taking a bunch of phone calls and like doing a bunch of other things. And then he rejected it off that viewing. Uh, and you know, whatever, 20 years later, he still seemed a little bitter about it. Um, and I, I think that in answer to your question, JR, I, th- and one of the, another one of the interviews I read with Lynch, it, it sounds like he really didn't know where it was going to go. I think in terms of some of the small, I mean, he's always very cagey about these things, but it did seem like he just wanted to put a bunch of, um, you know, subplots and plots kind of in the air with a main, you know, sort of story between, I'm going to get them confused. Is it Diane and Rita? Uh, is that right for the first two? No, Betty, Betty and Rita, Betty and Rita, and then Diane and Camille, the, the, the final third of the movie. But, um, I have a feeling he knew where that was going to go, but I think a lot of the other stuff, Robert Forster's character, you know, Adam Ketcher, uh, the director, et cetera. I think he just had those there almost to, you know, to throw to ABC is like, this will go somewhere. Um, but, uh, I, I, I sense he didn't really know where it was going to go besides the pilot. Yeah, I read somewhere that Forster was definitely supposed to have his own arc, but I suppose we could presume that just because he's he's a name guy, right? I mean, it's not really a revelation. Right, and as we talked about, he was the guy that David Lynch wanted to play Sheriff Truman originally. Yeah, and he's he's one of a few discrete links to the return, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we go through this. When when was this when did the actual pilot get filmed? I mean, what what, what was the year for the the pilot itself? 1999. Okay, so that yeah, that would have been after Forster had had his comeback because that was a couple of years after uh, uh, Jackie Brown when he you know won the Academy Award for it and and although he'd been a character actor for a number of years, that was really the thing that you know that got his got his name out there to where the average you know viewer would would know who Robert Forster was. So that that actually uh, that's probably peak Robert Forster right there in terms of 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 him as a as a get uh, for a for a show. Yeah, because I I think it was shot like the the pilot uh, was sort of like spring 1999, and then a year and a half later, you know, they got the the funding to continue it, sort of in like fall, late summer 2000. Uh, so yeah, I think there there was like a long like a year and a half gap between the new footage that he shot for it uh, to finish it, and when the original pilot was shot. All right, shall we move on to quizzing Kyle on what it's like to watch this movie for the first time and how it informed or the impression that it had on him, you Kyle, uh, having already been steeped in so much other David Lynch stuff, but having this as kind of a blind spot between, you know, twin peaks and the return. Yeah. Kyle story time. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the short version is I loved it. Uh, I mean, I thought it was really great. And, and I, I very specifically, very deliberately have avoided reading anything about it, any other theories, uh, certainly before I watched it and even, even since. Um, I, I thought it was, you know, it was, it was a really good movie. It was funnier, I think, than, than some of the other, uh, Lynch stuff we've, we've looked at. Uh, I mean, you know, we looked at the elephant man and that may have, that may have colored it a little bit because that was probably his, his, 
his least humorous movie. Um, but there was, you know, there was some good humor in here. It was, uh, it was an entertaining movie. Uh, it was engaging. It was intriguing. And it was, it was maddening, but in a good way, not in a how's Annie, I'm going to be pissed off for the next 25 years kind of way. So I, I, you know, short version is I thought it was great. All right. So we're going to put you on the spot. What's your theory? What do you think happened? I, I mean, I, I, this is going to shock no one. I, I I take it I take it literally. I, I don't think it's the fugue state stuff from Lost Highway. I, I think I think it's a way of of paying the nastiness forward. That you know you you get that blue key and you get your Faustian bargain, and then at the end you you know drop it in and somebody else gets uh you know gets screwed over because of it, and then they get to do the screwing over next time. Wait, by somebody else, you mean you take it to be the case that Betty and Diane Selwyn are two distinct entities? Yeah. Like they're different people? Well, no. I, I mean, it, it's that I think you get I think you get dropped down into, you know, something horrible, and then you get your blue key, and you get to drop somebody else into something horrible. And then you get, you get to go back to the good life. Does does somebody else being Diane Selwyn? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think I think uh, they they're continuations of the same entity in in different lives. But I, I don't think that any of it is a dream. I don't think any of it is somebody's way of mentally reconstructing some horrible event. That I, I think it's all actually happening. Oh wow! So wait, but do you does that mean you also think it happens chronologically? Like you think the first part of the movie happens before the end of the movie? No, I, I think it's. I'm not sure, quite frankly. Again, I've watched the thing once, but it it none of it struck me as she's. I mean, I've under, I understand your read on it, and you may be right, but I, I don't I don't get it as you know as these events unfold. She's she's her her mental state is collapsing, and and reality is breaking through this this vision. I, I mean, I think I think everybody's having these things happen to them as they go through them. That's fascinating. Yeah. But does that mean Diane Selwyn is having these things happen to her at more or less the same time as Betty? You said that there are two different phases of the life of sort of the same entity. But so you think the the naive Betty, um, well, I said Betty Cooper like it's Riverdale. Um, the naive Betty Elms uh, eventually becomes the sort of haggard, um, uh, scorned Diane Selwyn. Yeah, because I think a, a I transformation think her, that takes place. Yeah, her experience. Because you're, I, I think what you're, what's going, what's going on is, you know, again, you you get this blue key, you get to go live this this grand life, but there's there's got to be there's got to be payback. It's you know, it's got to get dropped on somebody, uh, and and you know, you get you get the nice opportunity to pay somebody back. I think we're seeing, you know, her arrival as this, you know, naive middle American aspiring actress and her being sort of chewed up and spit out by the Hollywood system and seeing someone who's less talented and less deserving, you know, take what should have been her spot. And she gets the opportunity to, uh, to turn the tables and takes it. Well, middle Canadian, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Some reason I had it in mind that she was from the Midwest, but you're right. There is a mention of Ontario in there. Yeah. She's from Ontario. I can't, I can't remember if that's Diane or Betty. Uh, it's, it's uh, Diane definitely says that she's from from Ontario, Deep, Deep, Deep River, Ontario, yeah. which is the same name as the apartment building, right in uh, Blue Velvet, Deep River. Yes, that's correct. 
So I suppose this is a good time to talk about how we each think that the movie sort of interacts, or the pieces of the movie interact, I guess, and, and fit together. Because um, I, I guess I sort of thought there was one prevailing interpretation of all of this, and I, and I see it maybe a little bit differently than I did when I first started watching it. Um, but I guess I sort of expected us all to agree. So I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, Kyle's perspective, and I suppose I would have more questions about it, but we can do that as we talk about more stuff in detail. Um, I, I just think that the Diane Selwyn character is the quote-unquote reality and that Betty Elms is a is a fantasy and a projection that she rebuilds a life with uh this Rita person as a substitute for her failed relationship with Camilla in quote unquote reality and that the first two thirds of the movie are more or less a, a delusion or a dream sequence that starts to collapse and fall apart around her and when the center can't hold anymore we're left with the very hard awful raw reality of of her life um but uh I'm curious to see where you guys are on this, Jr. and Jeff. I, I'm I'm basically with you, Ken. Uh, there are a couple things that I still, you know, are, are certainly not directly explainable, uh, but I do view the Diane character as a fantasy of, or the Betty character. Do you mean rather. Betty? Okay. Yeah, Betty is a fantasy of Diane, an alternate version where she tries to tell a better story about herself than what actually happened in her life. And that, that, that first, you know, two thirds of the movie is effectively a dream that, that, that's kind of how, how I viewed it. Uh, I, there are a couple little things though, that are interesting. Like the scene where the cowboy comes into the bedroom and says, it's time to get up little girl. It's interesting because when he comes in, it is Diane seemingly alive and then it switches to Diane's corpse, and he just gets out of there when that happens. Yeah. So that that to me seems some sort of a signal or a clue that there's. I mean, I don't know, some a little bit more than we might expect going on. Uh, that that scene just strikes me as like a fourth wall breaking moment to an extent. Like Adam is told that he'll see the uh, the cowboy twice if he does bad, once if he does good, or or vice versa. I forget which one now. Which which one is once and which one is twice? <laughs> once is good, twice is bad. There you go. would have and sucked so- in the American Revolution, Ken. You'd be like, uh, <laughs> either land or sea. <laughs> Shit, I can't remember. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it would have been a disaster. Um, but uh, I think he does "quote unquote" good because he complies. He does what the what the mobsters and everybody want in terms of casting this film and everything. So he is meant to see the cowboy one more time, but he doesn't. We do instead. The cowboy appears one more time in the film, so we stand in for for Adam. There is sort of how I read that. But I think you're right, Jr. That there's another layer to that that isn't easily explainable. No, I was I was going to say I. For a long time, I think the way I guess I sort of made my peace with the film was that interpretation, which I think probably is the standard interpretation that the two, the first two thirds of the film, which is roughly with probably some additions here and there, what the pilot would have been for the film, uh, I think fascinatingly enough. Uh, yeah, is this sort of dream se- I don't know if it's dream sequence or almost like a, like a fantasy kind of sequence that's either happening you know, <laughs> while uh, uh, Diane, you know, is about to kill herself or, you know, is killing herself uh, or yes, something like that. Some sort of like um, compensatory fantasy life uh, in which the reality of the final sequence in which Diane 
was in love, you know, lovers with Camilla. Camilla's career took off. Hers didn't. Uh, Camilla got engaged to, uh, is, does he have the same name, Adam Kesher, in the last part? He does, right? Yeah, I think he's Adam. Always. I think so. Yeah. yeah, Adam Kesher throughout. And, um, yeah, creates this kind of, I guess, version of her life in which the tables are turned and she's kind of in control. She's the one who's the good actress. Uh, and the only reason she's kept from success is this kind of like, you know, Byzantine, like labyrinthine, massive kind of like conspiracy against her. Uh, but as you said, Ken, the reality of things kind of keeps slipping through. And I, I always viewed it as kind of like a more successful, um, more, I guess, kind of coherent version of what Lynch was trying to do in, in Lost Highway. Um, and, uh, but as I kind of revisited it now and have thought about it more, I'm, I don't think that interpretation does account for everything. Because as you said, there are little bits that are odd that don't kind of quite fit into it. And I almost feel like I'm, maybe I, I think my viewing of it this time was definitely influenced by Twin Peaks to return in the final episode of that and thinking about, you know, almost like these different versions of the same lives, you know, uh, taking place. Uh, and so that's why I think Kyle's, you know, version of it is someone's going to have to pay the price for this or almost thought it was, thought it was like, you know, uh, two different versions of the same story, you know, that are happening at maybe in the same place <laughs> uh, or, you know, some sort of like quantum physics version of time, something like that. And they are intruding on each other and kind of like distorting the other in some way. So, uh, so I feel like I'm somewhere between this sort of standard interpretation that kind of J.R. Kyle and I talk about, but I like uh, J.R. Ken and I were talking about as well as, but I like Kyle's version too. So, well, yeah. let me, let me ask, because I, I mean, I certainly see where you're coming from and, and I definitely think the version you're describing accounts better uh, than mine does for things like, you know, her, uh, Betty going into almost, uh, an epileptic fit in Club Silencio. I mean, that, that certainly does lend credence to the idea that the barriers are breaking down and that that's sort of her version of the Balthazar Getty, Bill Pullman, you know, head thing that, uh, when, when he transitioned from one identity to the other in the psychic fugue in Lost Highway. So, I mean, that, that part clearly holds up. I guess the part that's weird to me, though, is, Adam's through line is consistent. You know, when, when they're there with Rita as Camilla announcing their engagement, he's referring back to what had happened to him earlier and what would, I guess, in theory happening in, in Diane's Betty fugue state of him coming home and finding his wife with the pool guy. I mean, he specifically references that. And I'm not sure why that would, why that would hold up. And I'm particularly not sure why in, if it's her fantasy, why is she, introducing subplots in her own fantasy life of this director going through a bad day. Well, I think that the answer to that, Kyle, is that the director was involved with her meeting Diane, meeting Camilla in the first place. And so he was a known person in her life. And he probably, she, one could imagine, would have really enjoyed to see him suffer in her fantasy, seeing as it was the fact in reality that Diane's lover was leaving her for him. The other thing, though, that I think is is more important that 
uh, shows that there is not the same kind of direct line between Adam Kirscher in the second part of the film and the first part of the film. In the first part of the film, Camilla has a different name, right? Camilla is the woman who gets cast for the right. 50s period piece, uh, not the dark-haired woman who is Rita in the first half and Camilla in the second half. And I think that is, again, part of, in the first part of the movie, Diane's fantasy, where uh, this is the girl. Camilla is the girl. Camilla is the girl who has to be killed. But she transfers this notion of her handing the picture to the hitman saying, this is a girl who has to be fi- killed, to this is the girl that Adam is going to hire. Right. And it, it's wonderfully self-absorbed when you view it that way, right? The only yes. way um, this person could fall in love with her and the way their love and relationship could be pure would be if they fell in love while going on some, like, Nancy Drew antics shit. And if she met Camilla when she was um, literally amnesiac, right? Like, her brain goes to this unbelievable soap opera place. And, like, a gorgeous brunette falls into my life literally naked and without any knowledge of who she is. Is, and I get to take care of her and form her identity and make her fall in love with me. And then right. the only way I wasn't going to get this big role is if the person who was cast was insisted upon by a shadowy cabal of mobsters who she creates out of the um, uh, identities of the people around her at that engagement party. Um, and uh, they force the director to cast this other person for reasons that are beyond my control or anyone else's and have nothing to do with my talent. And then, you know, uh, Adam is a miserable, um, sad sack who gets punished in this reality while i'm falling in love with this blank slate that is camilla he's just being abused by by life and and fortune and and his wife and everything else yeah i'm sure the pool boy thing actually happened but right i mean diane is a uh on the one hand a somewhat sympathetic character but she's also kind of an apex narcissist yes right uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I see that, I, and I, I get how it can, you know, be breaking through, and I get how it's, in some respects, you know, Kevin Spacey reading all the stuff on the bulletin board behind Chaz Palminteri and the usual suspects and, and bleeding that through into the story. But I guess I I saw the, the movement and the repetition, you know, Duncan Todd going from being the bewildered dreamer to being the knowing one by the counter. Uh, I mean, those, you know, the names changing in succession on the, on the Winkies waitresses. I, I mean, I, I saw that as it, it being this sequence, you know, if, if she gets to go to this, uh, mysterious hitman guy that, you know, all right, this is the one I want to have this happen to. Okay. Here's the key. And, you know, when, you know, when you see the key show up, you know that it's over. Um, so I, I mean, I, I saw it as, as the sign of the sequence. I mean, the, the Duncan Todd thing doesn't make any sense to me if she's imagining this happening. I mean, there doesn't, there don't have to be tiny little, uh, elderly pod people crawling through the door and, you know, woodsmen <laughs> living behind the dumpster, um, for this to work. I get what you're saying about Adam, JR. I don't see why, why would she come up with all this other stuff? That just doesn't certainly. But I think it's. I, th- I think the, yeah, the way the way I always account of that was that it's like she's not in control of it. You know, like there's she 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 wants it to be the certain way, but these other elements kind of keep intruding, and the, whether they're from like the unconscious or the subconscious or whatever. And I think there were little things where, for me, some of the stuff that always kind of you alluded to it, Ken, that kind of I guess troubled me at making this version of accounting for interpretation aligned for everything with things like why would. 
you know, um, I think she does see the cowboy at the engagement party, right? Yes. He she passes through, through a door, yeah. which is either, I don't know, the second or oh. the third time we've seen him. And then she also like, just like, yeah, Angelo Badalamenti's character is there. And it's just like, why would these kind of characters seen in passing take on such extraordinary kind of outsized emotional like import, you know, in the kind of fantasy sequence of things. Um, but there are other parts of it where, you know, like you said, it's just like the, that the elderly couple who are for me, along with the character behind the dumpster, you know, the most terrifying things in the whole film. Oh, definitely. Um, Clearly. Uh, They're the, so the creepy one, the one, and so wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but I, the, those seem to me sort of like authentic, I guess, just in terms of like these unconscious or these subconscious, um, you know, elements that kind of like intrude on this kind of fantasy life or, 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 the character, I mean, the, the, the character behind, uh, the, 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 the guy behind the dumpster, you know, the, the crispy character, um, he's also holding the blue box, you know, which is, um, you know, holding that. I, I always saw him as some sort of version of like, you know, the id, uh, you know, the, the, or the, the demon or whatever, you know, that, uh, you know, um, Diane unleashed once she, you know, it called the hit out on, Camilla in the the final third of the film, but yeah, there are little elements that didn't quite line up. And for me, the the things that were always like, I was like, well, why the cowboy? Why Battle of Menti? Why are they part of this conspiracy? But I I like that you know, Ken, what you said, it was just the people there at this moment of humiliation uh, and kind of like despair, public humiliation, kind of a way she she put those into characters into the cabal. So so yeah. so basically, then the beginning when when the car pulls up. She's she's rethinking. Diane is reimagining this murder that she's arranged, and then yeah, having right. it's it a, it's an it's an alternative having it not go through because she can't bear to accept that she had somebody killed, and so she makes it instead of the ending the starting point for Rita going through this thing where she doesn't know who she is, and and then she gets to recreate it the way she likes it. Yeah, I mean, she reimagines it starting with the moment bef- just before her humiliation, which looked like it was going to be, you know, this wonderful moment, right? Because um, Camilla has gone all the way down this garden path, right? She's abandoned her own party for like an hour to wait for a uh, limo to pull up in the age before cell phones, um, and <laughs> has uh, has met up with her friend and walked her up through this uh, this this gorgeous shortcut to the party or whatever. So it seems like it's going to be this wonderful moment, and then it turns out to be this night of horror for her, right? Um, so she's, yeah, started from that moment. Um, can I raise two issues though? Talk about two two subjects. Sure. Great. So the f- the first one, I, I want to defend or apply Kyle's theory to the Pod People grandparents because uh, I, I love the Pod People grandparents. I think they're great, and I think it's interesting to view them less as like cracks in the reality and more as like um, emblematic of Kyle's um, emphasis on karma. So. If the idea is that you're going to ascend through Hollywood and you're going to get to enjoy this this wonderful life and these adventures, um, but somebody is going to pay that there's rot beneath the surface in a blue velvet kind of a way, right? The sort of Rick disgrins from them um, and the way they're sort of dancing about at the end might might fit in nicely um, with that idea, I think. Um, so that's that's kind of an interesting layer to me. The other thing I want to mention is the the my least favorite part of the movie by a long shot, 
which is the wacky adventures of the hitman when he goes to get this black book and he shoots the innocent woman through the wall and there's this horrible like fat shamey something bit me bad stuff like i hate all of that i hate it and i wish it weren't in the movie but it it's also again to sort of defend Kyle's way of looking at it kind of ridiculous and pointless for her to be imagining. Like, it's a subplot on a subplot for her to think, well, this hitman that I hired to take out Camilla had this kind of a day instead is very odd, right? I was just going to say, I think one of the reasons I always liked this film so much was that I felt like it actually was honest, I guess, or or realistic for me in its depiction of, like, the genuine strangeness of dream life, you know, like it's like, I I don't dream as much as I used to, but I think sometimes when I, when I felt like I dreamed more and I could remember them better when I was younger, there are little weird things like that. You'd come up from sleep and you felt like you were trapped in like a sitcom for like 45 minutes or something like that, you know, however long the dream felt. And I like that those were included. And like, again, like a lot of this stuff, it just, it does seem like, uh, it's like this fantastic salvage job or like retcon of this like failed pilot. He just included kind of all these things, probably like stuff like that is, is likely what ABC made him cut out, you know, these things like that. It does seem like he's like, well, fuck you. I'm going to put it in, uh, into my final cut of it. Since I think making the 88 version minute version was so painful to it. But I also like that it was kind of in there and there were just like sort of stretches of it that, you know, regardless of whether they were put there necessitated by the production history of the film. Um, I, I like that they're in there. And it seemed to me like that one of the things that this is why I hate the movie inception um, is that it spent this much time on dream life, but it did, it followed like a rational dream logic and it was just trapped in this, in, in, in like a, like a fucking spy movie or something like that. No one dreams like that. Like, and this seemed like more like sometimes you dream about stupid hit, you know, hit people, you know what I mean? And they're, they're just like uh, these absurd kind of things like that. Um, and that that's all kind of lumped in together. And that's one of the things, one of the reasons I always loved the first, whatever two thirds of Mulholland drive so much, because it did include those things, you know, there's a fascinating yeah, Jeff, Nolan Jeff, conversation you, to have there, but I will avoid it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jeff, you, you, you said what I was going to say is that, you know, it, yeah, it does seem like some of the things, these things are a stretch for Diane to be, imagining but i mean who hasn't had a weird dream that spun off in some absurd direction that didn't make any sense at all and you know i can kind of imagine that i i am the feel the opposite well i don't say the opposite of ken but i actually really like this part i i I find joe joe the hitman incredibly endearing for some reason i mean (laughs) it's 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 straight out of elmore leonard that's what i liked about it is it just it really feels like this all right these criminals who are just bad at their jobs and and how is that gonna go which is far more interesting than criminals who actually know what they're doing yeah, and for uh, me, it's it's, so it's like ugly and so uh, mean spirited. Those scenes, Ugh. that's so is the unconscious in lots of ways. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> but I also I liked like for me, I can understand a bit about the woman kind of next door. Something bit me real bad, but the part where the the janitor just appears, you know, or, or the, in, the the custom, and then like then when the vacuum goes off when he's shot, that just was so absurd in this kind of classic lynchian you're right mean-spirited kind of way from like something like uh wild at heart See, uh, but there's still this the bit with the vacuum just is in the and, and then and all the alarms joe, going off in the whole building shot the guy we'd have gotten five minutes of vacuuming 
It would have been like the roadhouse. <laughs> right. Just, uh, yeah, it would have been so much happier. Janitor's cleaning yeah. up. No, I mean, We're going to stick this in the middle. My favorite part is Joe guilting the janitor in to get shot. Where he's yeah. like, I can't do everything myself, <laughs> right, man. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And just the look on the guy's face is so classy. He's just, he's, he's got that kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, Harry Dean Stanton, you know, at the Fat Trout Trailer Park look of more shit I got to deal with. You know what I mean? That's right. Like, I'm just That's up right. here. There's, oh, I got to deal with this now. So, yeah. Who are our favorite fast food eating assassins in the return um, that uh, that get dispatched oh, brutally in the end? Um, yeah, Tim Roth Hutch and, and Chantal. Uh, Hutch yeah, and Chantal. Hutch and Chantal. I, good I like, for you. Yeah. I like the violent end of Hutch and Chantal so much more than I liked the uh, the Hitman stuff in here. And it seems like it's, oh, no it's doubt. just no drawn doubt. from sure. the and, Sure. And, no, sure. Well, yeah. But sure. – yeah, you you had a, a Polish professional uh, take them take yeah. them out. I mean, you you had to love that, Ken. I did, I did. Yes, I felt seen. <laughs> that was the redemption of this scene. It took like you know, uh, eighteen years for Lynch to to work this out in the way that he wanted to when he finally got final cut from Showtime. Okay, so so it, you know, guys, is it the oh, is what ahead. everybody's imagining here that that. The Joe the Hitman scenes and you know and and Adam going through his bad day that this is all running through uh through uh, Naomi Watts's uh head in the in the crying masturbation scene and she's just trying to get through it to get to the parts with 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 Rita naked is that is that what you're positing? I've heard so, uh, I've heard I've heard different some people account for it yeah that it happens during the masturbation scene I've heard other uh I think the other most popular one is that it's all kind of going through her head, you know, like as she's dying, you know, as she's like about to kill herself so, okay. or in the instant that she kills herself. Okay. So, All right. Have you guys heard other places? I would I, agree. I, those I've those are the two. The, at the beginning, the opening sequence of the scene of the movie, people say it sounds like someone is snorting cocaine and that this is like some sort of drug induced dream that she has shortly before she kills herself. That 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 she's on the bed. One of the, one of the scenes where she's lying on the bed is is when this is taking place. And there is that scene at the very. I think it's like the jitterbug scene, and then you see sort of like this slow pan onto like a pillow, and then it goes into yes. the yeah. like yeah. the car right. driving like some, on, on Mulholland. Somebody's Drive, head yeah. falling on a pillow. Yeah, yeah. There, that's that's immediately after the jitterbug scene, which as good a time as any to mention, looks absolutely ghastly on the otherwise beautiful uh, Blu-ray DVD. Somebody on a on an AV review site posited that the only f- available source of that jitterbug footage was like um, standard def VHS, and they just like tacked that on to the copy, but that makes no sense to me. Like, the movie came out on DVD when it was first released. It was printed on film a bunch. There are no, there are no film prints anywhere of that, uh, of that jitterbug sequence. It's bizarre, but it looks awful. A genuine jitterbug sequence cannot be captured on celluloid. Right. Oh, right. okay. All yeah, right. yeah. No, I see, and I like the beginning. I will say, just to back up for a moment, I, I do kind of like Jeff's, you know, occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge kind of explanation that it's all going through her head right before she dies. I, that that I'll buy. But I kind of like the beginning because you've got you've got this sort of the Elephant Man like beginning, you know, straightforward black and white titles, this sort of ominous background thrum, disjointed, blurry image. And and you've got that David Lynch feel, and then it goes right into all this dancing, like the like the cast of Bye Bye Birdie is doing the opening credits of a Bond film, and then you get the sort of peppy music and smiling faces, and you immediately know this is going to go badly. I mean that that was the the beauty of it. It's kind of like Jr.'s reaction to Sonny Jim getting the playset from from you know Jim Belushi that just. Hey, this seems so happy and so idyllic in a David Lynch movie. This can't possibly go anywhere good. 
Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because um, one of the, again, one of the things I was kind of reading about when they were shooting the pilot, Lynch was, you know, typically like, you know, uh, cagey about where this was going to go, but they were shooting a lot of the scenes with, with Betty, you know, and they were very, you know, chipper and he kept pushing like Naomi Watts to kind of go more over the top with the positivity. But there were, even though no one knew where the the plot was going to go, everyone kind of on the set just cut and, and people were asking him, I think like, I'm not sure if it was like the production designer, or the f- director of photography, someone was just like, this is, this is going to go bad, isn't it? Something bad is going to happen, you know, before there was like any indication, you know, and things, but everyone was just like, this is, that's what the twist is. This is going to go bad, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first five to seven minutes are super, super noir, which I, which I really like. Um, and I think apropos of what we were just saying about when this fantasy might be devised, um, Chris Rodley would like us to remember that, uh, Lynch is obsessed with Sunset Boulevard and Sunset Boulevard is right. a movie told by a corpse floating face down in an LA swimming pool. Right. So, uh, I, I think that's bears, bears noting. So one, one thing that, is interesting to think about watching this movie in 2018 is that, you know, it's 17 years old, but it really doesn't seem to be that old watching it. I mean, I know Ken, you've, you've mentioned that the technology at certain points can get jarring, but it really, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it was 17 years ago. This movie was made. Yeah. I mean, except for the phone books and pay phones and fax machines and ashtrays and real ass taxis instead of Ubers um, and phone books and such. Um, I, I think that it does feel very contemporary. It, the, the, the filmmaking feels incredibly contemporary, right? It's uh, it, it's still sort of a just a wow to sit down and and watch and the the way it's shot and the way it's constructed is just just so impressive and and just draws me in in a way that doesn't feel in any way dated it's also timeless in a noir sort of a way right it's timeless in a way that right. like sunset boulevard is sort of timeless yeah it, it's it's interesting i know it, i know exactly what you mean jerry and i think part of it is that you know it it follows you know this kind of dream logic and it, its relationship to, you know, quote, reality, even in these kind of scenes that purposely emphasize grittiness, you know what I mean? And kind of ugliness uh, in the scenes with Diane in the final third of the film, there's still, you know, a strangeness kind of about them. And I think that maybe helps it feel less dated. But then I also was really interested in, I guess, thinking about it as like a turn of the millennium kind of film, like a pre nine 11, you know, film. Uh, and just what we kind of talked to, you know, like even though he shot it, you know, for, um, uh, and also like a pre, you know, kind of, I, I was, I, I'd like to imagine this getting picked up by ABC and airing in the fall of like 1999, you know, like sort of like before, is that the year like the Sopranos comes out before the beginning of kind of like peak TV, you know, and yeah, it, it's it the like, very beginning um, of prestige TV. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and it kind of showing up in like the, the lineup for ABC in like 1999, how strange it would have been. Uh, but yeah, he, he still shot it kind of like on film, you know, the way that he was shooting a feature film to kind of shoot the pilot in the same way that he did for the Twin Peaks pilot back in, I guess, 1989. Uh, but then, you know, it comes out like a month after nine eleven, uh, and um, you know, which which seems to be sort of a dividing line between um, some sort of like 
intrusion of the digital <laughs> into everything, uh, kind of post nine eleven, and so so there is this way in which I see what you mean. It doesn't seem like it came out. There's a timelessness about it. But Kim pointed out some of the technological things. But then I also see it as kind of like, you know, this sort of farewell to the twentieth century, you know, kind of film. Um, and yeah. you know, it has those obviously conscious ties back to the film noir tradition, and specifically stuff like kind of you know Sunset Boulevard and um Gilda just to name you know the two films sort of explicitly referenced in uh Mulholland Drive but yeah but there is a sense of it for me as like a this very much like uh a 20th century film <laughs> a last gasp of a 20th century film uh it, that bridges into the, the 21st century so yeah well, and it, to me, it feels less dated. I mean, I, I hear what Ken's saying, and he's right about the, the technology, but because it is so self-consciously a film noir, um, and, and it looks so good, you know, particularly the Criterion Collection, which y'all talked me into getting. So, um, you know, the, the, the quality of the visuals is, is so good and so current, and so modern. And since it's a film noir, it, it almost feels like it was made now. And it's set back in the past because it's a film noir. And so it's using all this old technology. It, do, it doesn't feel dated in that sense. It feels like it's, yeah. it's an effort. It's like The Godfather, you know, was made in the seventies, yeah. but it looks like the forties. It's set there. And that's right. that, you know, and you don't look at it and go, gosh, this looks like a World War II movie. No, it doesn't. It, it, it looks like a movie made later to look like that. And, and it, it gives it a different feel to me than just being old. Whereas, like, something like Lost Highway to me seems so clearly like a 1990s right, film. Right, right. Uh, yeah. But, like, well, something... That, a, but, a lot of that is the soundtrack, though, yeah. Jeff. Yeah. Because that, it's a, you know, it's got that... It's got contemporary music from that period of time. To right. It's, right. It's a fantastic soundtrack, but a soundtrack that's very much of its time. I, You know, I have such a hard time because I, I watched Lost Highway so many, many more times than this film. And I had just gotten off of writing a thesis about Lost Highway when this movie came out. And I, I saw this three times in theaters between fall of 01 and, and spring of 02. But I, I always thought that it was a little bit less successful than Lost Highway because it seemed like a more tightly wound Mobius strip, that there was this explanation that seemed to tie most all of it together, whereas Lost Highway is just a lot of, like, branching down corridors that lead to dead ends or um, to tricks or something, right? Um, and so in that way, I just thought it was it was a less successful film. I, I think if I watched them back-to-back now, I would almost certainly come away with it feeling like I liked Mulholland Drive better, as yeah. most of the world kind of landed, right? Um, but it was it was almost impossible for me to get there when the movies were, were newer. I certainly adore Rewatching Mulholland Drive these last couple times, including at the Castro, it's just it's just magnificent. I'm disappointed, Ken. You and I didn't go see Mulholland Drive when we were in law school together. Uh, disappointed and a, and a little surprised, honestly, since I managed to see it three times. But I think I dragged Adrian right, all right. three and times. And I saw I saw I saw I saw it for the first time with Renee. Oh yeah. Uh, and shortly after we started dating, whereas you and I went together to go see Lost Highway, we had to find uh, some. I forget what theater it was. You could probably tell me, but it was we we couldn't find it in a mainstream theater. It was you and me and E Lee wearing a a Girl Scout pajama top i don't know why i remember that but i do i think i think it was i think it was the lennox square movie theater i remember i drove and we drove by that gigantic green uh, gigantic copper fish and you pointed out that because it was copper one day it would be green and i think we've since seen pictures and it is in fact today green that's correct i remember that well uh 
turning things a little bit back to where we were a couple minutes ago, Gilda, the movie that's referenced by the movie, is Gilda is the movie whose poster is the basis for Rita's name in the first half of the movie. And Ken, you've done some research and have watched the movie Gilda. What do you have to share? Yeah, thanks. I did. I just rewatched Gilda today. Um, it's never a chore. It's a fantastic, fantastic movie. And there is a wonderful Criterion Blu-ray of that out, too. Um, and wh- what's interesting about Gilda is how just absolutely inky black its soul is. Like, it's it's a movie that it's built on hate. It's, it's a little bit like... Um, <laughs> It, it really is. I mean, it's it's a little bit like Phantom Thread. I don't know if you all saw that, but it's a in in which like just the the deep hatred that these characters have for each other becomes like psychosexual foreplay, um, and it's it's just two characters tormenting one another and. It's uncomfortable in certain ways to watch in 2018 because some of the ways that um, Rita Hayworth as Gilda is doing the tormenting is by sort of pretending to cat around and be unfaithful to a husband whose best friend she's really trying to upset. And so she's sort of using her sexual agency in a way that relies on men being very puritanical and judgy and sort of awful towards her. And so, but misogyny is sort of responsible for both ends of the tormenting that's going on. But either way, the 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 dynamic that seems to carry over from that movie to this one in Mulholland Drive is is the sexual humiliation and the lengths that it causes people to go to. Now, um, Gilda also has a ridiculous subplot involving a tungsten cartel, and <laughs> there are some stray Nazis because it came out in 1946, and like um, some songs. Although I guess Mulholland Drive has uh, songs as well, um, which which I adore. Uh, but but the main thing is that this uh, this character uh, played by Glenn Ford and this character played by Rita Hayworth have this past um, and they have you know broken up with each other and humiliated each other and their story plays out in several different locations over sort of you're meant to believe years if not decades. Um, there's also like a discreet last third of the movie that is different from the first two thirds that came before it in Gilda. So structurally, there is that where it becomes basically a different movie with half an hour left. So um, Gilda's rich husband has died, although, in fact, he's faked his own death for tungsten cartel related reasons. It doesn't matter. Um, but So he's died and she has married um, Johnny, the, the Glenn Ford character that she has the hate, love, hate thing with. Um, and he spends sort of the last half hour of the movie tormenting her by sort of locking her away and refusing to grant her a divorce and and just being awful. Holy shit. Yeah. Did, does he does he fake his own death in a boating accident? That's a, no, there's an airplane. Situation. <laughs> oh, I see. I see what you mean. It's uh, the sea is involved. There's a so he flies out over the ocean. It looks like the plane goes down into the sea and everyone dies, but in fact he's parachuted out of the plane and gotten on another one that is a seaplane. Um, so so it's basically like Lost. Uh, sure. I, don't, I haven't seen Lost, so I can't tell you. But you haven't seen Lost, though. Yeah, that's what people say. Um, so yeah, so but but structurally, there is that bit where it sort of becomes a different movie with a, um, it's like Gilda spends the first sort of um, two thirds of the movie, um, having this sort of agency and sort of um, making life difficult in various ways for her husband and for Glenn Ford. And then he turns the tables on her over the p- last half hour of the movie. And there's a 
kind of a happy ending to it, though, as the uh, critic who did the essay that came with the Criterion version points out, it feels suspect. It feels more like a criminal escape than it does like a, a love prevailing sort of a situation at the end. Um, but uh, besides the fact that it's an iconic film noir, besides the fact that, you know, it introduced Rita Hayworth uh, to sort of the world as a bombshell, um, and uh, besides the fact that the Laura Herring character is supposed to be sort of like, uh, you know, a beautiful, irresistible ingenue um, in Mulholland Drive. I think the the psychosexual hate is a powerful emotion thing is the is the key uh, link between the two. Oh, and also apparently the uh, because of that movie, one of the planes that tested out atomic weaponry in uh, Bikini Atoll was called the Gilda. So the servicemen were like obsessed with Rita Hayworth as a bombshell, and for you know wordplay reasons, bombshell they called this plane the Gilda. Um, and Hayworth was apparently like furious about it, like like raving and um, trying to um, appear in front of Congress and like just just absolutely furious, as documented by her uh, then husband been Orson Welles, because uh, she thought, um, like David Lynch filming episode eight of The Return, she thought nuclear power would, or nuclear weapons would unleash some very bad shit on the world. Oh, and somebody at one point very sinisterly says, got a light in Gilda. So. Whoa. That's fantastic. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Ken. I mean, yeah, no, from what you described, I mean, it, that is exactly what happens in the last third of the film. Right. In terms of this story of, you know, sexual humiliation and torment. And yeah, that's, that's great. And they must have seen – I would assume that they filmed that scene as part of the pilot, not as part of the uh, stuff they tacked on. So maybe that was part of what they were going to do for the rest of the series. I felt like I used to know a lot more about what was supposedly in the pilot versus like what was added after. But I couldn't like find whatever source I used for that anywhere. So, yeah. I think I used to like – believe for whatever reason or like had heard that the scene where they discovered the body in the apartment was where the pilot was originally supposed to have ended. Um, but yeah, but I think you're, I mean, roughly the first two thirds of it is what the pilot would have been. So, but I think with the love scene added, um, I can't remember if there's anything else that would have, would have been added to it after the fact, but, but I, I do think that he shot the silencio sequence as part of the pilot. There's no way that of the scene in the bed was going to get on the right. air in 1999. Yeah, pretty sure you could put it on ABC today. On the couch. Yeah, yeah. On the yeah. on the Criterion uh, DVD, there's an interview with Laura Alina Hearing where she talks about how they shot the pilot and they got shut down, and then like a, whatever a year and a half later, Lynch invited Hearing and and Watts to his house and was like, you know. Um, it's going to be an international feature film now, but there's going to be nudity. And then talk to them about the, the the sex scene that was going to kind of be in there as well as some of the other things. So, yeah. So, I think for sure that was shot after. This yeah. That seems like as opportune a moment as any to talk about the pixelated junk thing. So, uh, I mean, I, I, we should mention for, for our listeners that Mulholland Drive is like famous in the annals of DVD collecting because it came out when DVD was a pretty new medium. And because Lynch, uh, was really worried about perverts pausing and like zooming in on Laura Herring's, uh, genitalia. And, uh, so he blurted out, he pixelated it, um, in the cuts. 
and you know uh, purists who want the DVDs to look exactly like the film were upset. I don't, maybe purists and perverts and wherever that Venn diagram crosses. Um, I think with websites like uh, Mr. Skin and stuff in the world, he probably was justified in a, to some extent in his concerns. He's like, look, I got this lady to sign up to be fully naked on a screen in a in an instant in a movie theater. I did not envision that there would be technology where people could like you know um, pause and watch her um, disrobe frame by frame. Um, I guess for the Blu-ray release, they've undone the pixelation. It is so dark that it is impossible to see anything anyway. So I don't know, despite the very famous um, sort of uh, AV club nature of this whole thing, uh, I I don't know how anybody could have ever told. I mean, it was probably like the dumbest controversy ever, because I don't think anybody could have ever seen, unless you really turn the brightness all the way up, and I don't know, I don't know. That that may be the quaintest old technology bit that uh, of this entire thing. That that was something yeah, that was actually right. a thing you could be worried about in two thousand one. Right. The DVD for this did have chapter stops, right, or did it not? Do you remember? It did not. You could not stop. Yeah. You can just go fast forward and backward. That was what very maddening to me. I think the at same, the time when I was same really. As the case- yeah, I loved, I was, you know, whatever, very excited about DVD technology. It seemed very high tech at the time. And I think the fact that you could not fast forward this drove me insane. Yeah, but I mean, it's the, kind the, of there insane. were no it's chapter just, stops. It, yeah. Yeah. Same on the Blu ray and the Criterion collection. It's, there are, there are no chapters. Yeah, he's, oh, I he didn't still even, hates that. But I mean, I did two I did not different, know that. I didn't even try. Yeah. Two different film major theses without the aid of DVDs or chapter stops, right? Just using VHS tapes. So I have, I have no sympathy for the current generation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. As someone who has bought Twin Peaks, the season one <laughs> on VHS twice, you know, they need to, they need to shut up and suck it up. <laughs> Uh, it's always it yeah. always comes back to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No chapter stops on your Betamax. <laughs> um, so we're we are reaching the hour point. So I think we should stop, and I think we can finish tonight without any trouble. Yeah, let's let's um, close so, this uh, this chapter of the thing, and uh, then I'll uh, mention a couple things I want to make sure we get to in the next hour or whatever.
let poor Ed 